1: businesses need to be brave in talking about expertise in new ways you know it's not okay to be a ceo and just say well i don't do marketing that's my chief marketing officer
2: it seems quite against the kind of current vogue in a way though i mean people are talking a lot about the future of education being a sort of uh, implants that you stick in your head
1: i thought organizations like goldman sachs might say that sounds rubbish you're not from a top five university you're not coming
2: Hello, everyone. Ed Fido is one of the minds behind the UK's first new university with degree granting powers since the 1960s. It's called the London Interdisciplinary School. Uh, People are buzzing about it as one of the most radical things to hit education in ages. Why is that? I think probably because it's not the most sort of typical university with the same old specialized subjects. Their curriculum is all about tackling real world problems. I'm fascinated to hear more about this and Ed who's generally here to sort of break down uh, his work so far and how he sees the future of education. welcome to the show, Ed
1: yeah thanks Tom. Good to be here
2: um We're going to kick this off with uh, with the typical question which is what is your wildest prediction for the future?
1: Well, I think monodisciplinary degrees will become an eccentricity
2: okay um but doesn't the world need sort of specialists? Isn't the whole world based around people with deep expertise in one area?
1: Uh, the whole one? No, absolutely not. I mean, I think um, we we don't claim that um, we don't need experts. We absolutely do need experts, but we need to look again at the nature of the expertise that we need. I think it's worth taking a step back to understand why we have so many monodisciplinary degrees and by the way they're so prevalent that people don't call them that they just call them degrees Yes. and then so when we have an interdisciplinary degree um, people think that's very unusual um, and they question its validity I mean part of the reason that we have uh, knowledge organized the way we do is because of uh, the physical requirement of libraries and the need to physically organize knowledge in a way in which you can navigate it Um, and we use the Dewey Decimal System for a very long time and in this system you know everything's numbered and so you know three three hundred gets you down to social sciences, 390 to customs and etiquette, 398 to folklore. And then you kind of, you know, 398.1204 gets you to something like Cornish Pixies. And, and, then we, and, and then we've decided that we have to learn that way too. So if you're going to do a degree, you're going to learn a section of the corridor in a library. It's not actually done that way because that's the way the world works. And increasingly, that isn't the way the world works. It's not how young people learn. Um, if you think about YouTube and how they learn on the internet, where all the knowledge is interconnected. And it's not how organisations operate.
2: But what happens after the letter M in with one of your with one of your degrees? You offer sort of B, you know, bachelors and masters. Surely there needs to be a sort of word after that. What is it? Sort of everything, um, yeah. interdisciplinary studies, problem solving. You know, what well, am we're I getting?
1: Actually, we're creating a new uh, challenger to the MBA um, now, and it's really based on the same premise. We think that leaders, as well as young people, leaders need to be able to understand the complex problems that the world faces now. And these complex problems are necessarily they're interdisciplinary, you know, then you're not just going to tackle them with a knowledge of just chemistry or just economics. But to your first point, These are people who need to be able to access um, areas with deep expertise, with deep, narrow expertise. I I think, of course, we're going to need people with sort of very narrow, deep expertise in terms of um, uh, chemistry or biology to think about the next pandemic. But wouldn't it have been great to have people around the cabinet table or around corporate boardrooms who could understand the science, the maths, as well as the uh, human aspect, the political aspect or the legal aspect of, of, of these big challenges that we face?
2: Is it a hard sell? um you know degrees are so expensive and so important that for people to take perhaps a a risk um is that a challenge of getting people to to kind of accept that maybe the world's not ready for this
1: hugely difficult and hugely difficult at the bachelor's level because it's a much i think a much bigger as you can imagine when you're 17 18 you're going to go there for three years it's the biggest purchase by far you've ever made it's the biggest commitment of time you're going to make as, as as an adult and um And and people want to be reassured by a brand that has lasted 100, 200 years. I mean, I think it is the biggest marketing challenge out there taking on the oldest, biggest brands in the world. I mean, Oxford and Cambridge have been around for hundreds of years, nearly a thousand years. Um, There's very few older brands or bigger brands than them. And, and it's a very personal thing going to universities. You sort of attach it to yourself as a personal thing. It's not like buying a car um, and saying, I'm a BMW person. You can make a switch. Once you've been to Bristol or Imperial, you can't undo that. It's you. you know, it's a, it's a, I went to Imperial. It's, it's a part of who I am. Um, so, it's, so it's a big thing. But there is, a, at the minute, a smaller group of people who are really excited by making a very different choice and actually identify with the fact that it's risky. They like that. They like the fact that they're, they're taking a different path.
2: Um, have people graduated from this so far? And, and if so, where have they sort of ended up afterwards?
1: Well, no, they graduate. So our first cohort graduate this coming summer, um, which is an exciting moment for us. That's our first undergraduates. We have had a graduate of master's students graduate just recently, like last month. Um, but some of our undergraduates are starting to get jobs, and interestingly, one of them has secured a job at Goldman Sachs, which wasn't necessarily what I was expecting. I thought organisations like Goldman Sachs might say, "That sounds rubbish. You're not from a top five university. You're not coming." But I think they recognise we've got we've got faculty from uh, the absolute elite universities who have joined us, and some of our students um, have you know, were coming in with perfect A-level grades, and they're they're absolutely top quality students. And and even organizations like Goldman Sachs are really excited about this interdisciplinary approach. But also another student who's already got a job secured as head of growth at a at a tech startup. Um and I'm excited to see, I'm expecting them, and, and they do internships in a whole range of different uh, sectors, you know, local government, national, you know, NGOs, uh, startups, big corporates, because all these organizations are wrestling with complex problems.
2: Um I guess that kind of leads me on to um Almost taking a step back, I mean, what do you think the role of education in the broadest sense is? Like, are you there to prepare people for the world of work? Are you there for people to improve themselves more sort of in, introspectively? Are you there for people to sort of develop life skills? Like, what, what's the role of education more broadly these days? And has that changed over the last few decades?
1: Yeah, I think it has changed. I mean, if you if you take the long-term view, which in not our sector is like a thousand years, or it could be longer. But universities started out as a repository of knowledge, literally before you had anywhere else to store it, sort of in brains and books is where it had to be be stored. It then shifted a bit in the Industrial Revolution, I think, to kind of feed and support the skills and knowledge that were required. So that's where the red bricks kind of came out of that. Um, The plate glass universities in the 60s were perhaps more about this kind of idea of... um, being fairer to a larger group of people, you had an education system, which was provided free up through to 16 years old and beyond. And then you could support a larger group of people to have a, it was kind of the emancipation of the university education. But I think what it's become a little bit too much in the last 40, 50 years is a credentialing um, process, a kind of ranking system, which is useful for employers. And then, but in some senses, they're outsourcing their recruitment to universities who then say, well, we're a sort of a group university and they got a 2 1, therefore, they um, you can tick certain boxes, but too many times those boxes are this person can get themselves organized, they can conform to an institution, they can do what they're told to do, uh, and they have a kind of base level of maybe numeracy or writing skills, and that's fine. But I think what education should be more about is genuinely um, providing people with the skills they need to be successful. And I think when it comes to tackling the complex problems we face. It has to be different to how it's been in the last 50 years. Otherwise, you know, we're just going to make the same old problems
2: again. It seems like there's been a few kind of missteps, really. I mean, I remember maybe 20 years ago, everyone was supposed to be learning Mandarin or Cantonese. And then, you know, five years ago, everyone was learning how to code. And that was the way to sort of future-proof your your career. Um, but it was always about kind of knowledge, which, which seemed odd in a world of kind of infinite knowledge for free online. So uh, is there a kind of shift towards... Um, almost like skills, or even sort of values, as uh, the the kind of output of of, a, of an education. Well,
1: since since the seventies, people have been making the the argument that it should be more about skills or people's ability to collaborate or work together. And the sort of progressive education movement is not a new thing. It's probably it's been around before the seventies even, but it has a bit of a bad rap, and that's because. From my perspective, the progressive movement has some really good things to say, and I, I would consider LAS to be part of the progressive movement. Um, but I think it also uh, has a, many, many weaknesses, and one of them is this kind of shunning of knowledge. And I, you know, we know that the cognitive science tells us that in order to Google something effectively, it's better for you to know something about it already. And if you're going to ask a good question to chat GPT, you'll ask a better probing question if you've Already got some knowledge of that area. You learn something faster if you already know something about it, um, and there's all sorts of um, neuroscience that, that, that proves this to be true. And we, we we just know that the way you kind of acquire knowledge and you have a sort of knowledge tree, and you you kind of add new um, areas of knowledge to it, and the denser it gets, the quicker it is to add to it. So if you if we're all walking around with no knowledge in our heads, we'd find it extraordinarily difficult to access the um, the library of the internet. And I think. Um, it's also harder to be creative with that knowledge because if everything's then crowding your working memory because you're you're basically reading everything for the first time. People who are seriously creative have very, very deep knowledge and I, our, our um, proposition is that having knowledge in a range of areas will enable you to be creative in new, new ways.
2: It seems quite against the kind of current vogue in a way though. I mean, people are talking a lot about the future of education being you know, sort of uh, implants that you stick in your head uh, or AI uh, answering everything. And the AI has the ability to sort of scan all these, this, the kind of width of inputs and um, and create that kind of interdisciplinary focus for us. Um, I mean, do you think those people are all wrong? Um, are they too in love with technology? What's What's going on?
1: Well, I mean... I think when you when it comes to talking about technology like implants, because we don't really know how that's going to work, I don't think we can make many bets. I don't think it would be right to bet the next generation's education on that. I think we do know and have always known, and it's always been true, that to know something, um, sort of deeply understand something, and actually to understand a broad range of things has almost always been um, a positive um, life skill, let's say. Is AI going to change that? Well, Google didn't change it. and Google was sort of instant access to all the knowledge in the world everywhere. And in a sense, you could say, well, why go to university because there's no knowledge that exists in universities that doesn't exist on Google, basically. you know, every course on Stanford, you can pretty much do it for free online. Um, so there's two things. One is, I think there's a value to actually knowing that stuff in your long-term memory. Because you can then choose to access it and make connections, which are, you know can access it when you need to. We need to, and you, if you don't know it in the first place, you won't know to access it. Um, and the second thing is, there's a pedagogical value to the education system, which is people learning to, um, of course, socialise. Which comes back to what's the point of education: work with other people, learn with other people, integrate with other people. Um, schools quite good at this, but actually, it's a little too individualised, I think, and so are universities often, where we're being essentially assessed on your ability to create an individual output whereas the world of work is less focused on that it's more interested in the output itself and it doesn't really care how whether it was you or as a team that got there in schools we obsess over where you sit in the rankings of you versus your individual other classmates um And then you get spat out of the education system and you're expected to work in teams. Uh, And that's something you haven't learned. And I don't think that's something that AI or implants is going to help you with either. So education provides you with an opportunity to work with real content in collaboration with other people.
2: I think there's this amazing thing that happens to most people at the end of the education conveyor belt, um, where, where you suddenly get off it and you realize quite how ill prepared you are for almost every element of modern life. Um, and it's not the sort of classic things of, you know, being able to cook a good meal or, or sort of knowing about the, the power of compound interest rates. It's actually, you know, how to send an email or actually how to persuade people in a in a, in a sort of a corporate environment. Um but we've kind of known, like you say, for about the last sort of 50 or, or 60 years that the education system is kind of based around, you know, a, a factory line that sort of creates cogs where people are not the best they can be but the most sort of alike each other. Why has it been so difficult and why has it taken so long uh, for people to recognise that fault and to try to do something about it? Um,
1: so if you can pick up on one point you made, first of all, I agree Essentially, at school, we spend 14 years not creating anything of value for anybody else. We create we create outputs of work which are useful for us as revision materials, but they're not of use to our teacher and they're certainly not of use to our classmates and certainly not of use to anyone else in society. And at university, we go off and we also create a lot of work that's of no value to anybody else. And so the end of your entire education system in this country and everywhere in the world, you you leave and you've never created work of value for somebody. And then that is Literally, all that the world wants from you is you to create work of value. And of course, in creating work of value, you have to immediately listen to other people. Uh, you have to understand what they need and want. You have to collaborate with uh, um, people. You have to trial and try. you have to fail in trial, try stuff uh, to see what is is valuable and what's not valuable. So, I think that um, that is a huge flaw of the education system not preparing us. Why hasn't it changed? It's because I think it has become about ranking and credentials rather than about knowledge. If you asked students now. You can either have the knowledge from a university degree or you can have the, the, the piece of paper from a university degree. One or the other, which we have, but you can only have one. Too many would choose the certificate. That's my belief, rather than the knowledge. They wouldn't want the knowledge without the credential. And that's not, that's not good. Um, so we've got ourselves into the wrong place. And I think that once it's about credentials, it's about brand. And we're in a sector where brand is almost directly correlated with age. So how do you have new entrants? So then you've got to rely on the incumbents to change. And the incumbents aren't going to change because universities are incentivized around research, not around undergraduate teaching and learning. So they're incentivized around that. They're organized around that. And there's extraordinary barriers, which are both physical, structural, political, um, which means that academics are not going to start reorganizing themselves to create different kinds of pr- learning programs.
2: Um but surely the incentives are there for people to do this, or is is it a kind of chicken and egg situation where the market that needs to sort of, quote unquote, buy graduates from this system is not buying them because they don't exist, or are they not buying them because they don't value uh, the concept of an interdisciplinary sort of student?
1: It's a couple of things. I think if you think about Oxford and Cambridge, about 15% of their income is undergraduate tuition fees. And so they're not going to change the way they're organised based on undergraduate teaching and learning. And then other institutions look to Oxford and Cambridge as the model. A lot of academics want to sort of end up there or be promoted to there, And so they're sort of aping their structure. Um, and research is, until recently, you couldn't really get promoted to professor um, based just on a teaching path you'd have to go down a research path and research is, as you'll know you know tends to get narrower and narrow and is housed in departments and so that kind of departmental um, hegemony
0: selling a little or a lot Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
1: Is, 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 you know, has been long lasting. I think the markets um, are sort of accepted, and I think this is bad, that none of the direct content and skills that are learnt on a degree will be useful for um, for their workplace, they just want that kind of discipline, which we talked about before. Um, So the market isn't really demanding anything other than um, access to the brightest students, and they consider brightest to be best institution and what grade did you get?
2: Um, to what extent is this something where you need to work with kind of hiring entities or hiring managers? I mean, I work for a very large sort of global advertising agency network, and I was I was very aware that the entire process of recruitment was basically risk avoidance. It was how it wasn't how can we maximise the chance of of some remarkable people um, doing extraordinary things. It was how can we ensure that we don't have too many people that were a bit crap, um, and therefore every sort of objective and traditional measure possible was used um with the first one being you know do you have a degree and at what uh, level did you pass and it, it seemed kind of odd but i i kind of i wonder how much that kind of uh, plays into some of the the issues that you face sometimes yeah i mean
1: to be fair to it, employers whenever we speak to um their heads of talent or chief people officers at major firms that you might consider to be a bit stuffy and old-fashioned they get very very excited by what we're doing okay. um and now Uh, Does that mean they're going to hire from us or are they going to kind of revert to their more conservative ways? We're we're about to find out. Um, But I think what they may do, honestly, in this first instance for our first graduating cohort is look at them and go, wow, this is an unusual group of people. They've taken an unusual level of risk. Um, They're obviously kind of interesting um, on various dimensions. And maybe let's have a look at them. Whether over time in 10, 20 years, they will agree that actually this interdisciplinary skill set is markedly um, more useful than hiring um, from highly selective uh, single discipline institutions. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. I definitely think people are on conservative um, sort of approaches to hiring. But it's partly because it's such an imperfect science hiring. I think it is very, very difficult. Um I used to work at McKinsey. They spend a lot of time thinking about hiring, but also accept that they basically make sort of sort of 60-40. Um, if they get 60-40 right, that's a pretty good result. I mean it's 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 such an imperfect science. And so, you know, employers say, well, these students have had to work over three years pretty hard get a hand a bunch of stuff in on time. Basically that's a pretty good test. So let's let's sort of leave it at there. Um, I don't think that's good enough. And I wonder whether increasingly technology, AI, and so on will enable them to give people real-time tasks to see whether they can actually do these knowledge economy jobs. And and I think the knowledge economy particularly has found it hard to provide those kinds of tests for people. um, In a way that, you know, I used to work at a school, you know, you can watch somebody teach a class and see, are you good at this or not? And you're not really that interested in their degree. But in the knowledge economy, people have sort of outsourced it to universities.
2: Uh, What are your thoughts on how technology is changing the way that education is delivered? Um, I mean, less kind of an iPad rather than a textbook and more something like distance learning. Um, Like, uh, I think your courses are offered in person as well as remotely. Um, What are your thoughts on the potential for that to reach more people versus the degree to which in person is essential?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, COVID has changed my mind on it, actually. So so we founded this, and I had every intention uh, when I was first thinking about it, to found it as an in-person, face-to-face university, because I'm a big advocate of that, for you know, some of the social reasons. And I also think learning is to some extent a contact sport. That was my firm belief in 2019. And then, by about two thousand and twenty one I, I realized partly through a kind of fear goodness me we 're going to have to be able to spin this round in case another pandemic comes, but also a sort of realization that actually some things are better taught um, online some some things you know some things particularly quantitative um, subjects coding and so on it 's actually taught better rather than sitting in a lecture hall or a seminar. Um, I still think there's many things where there is benefits to being there in person because you get the little incidental conversations in the corridor, you get students, you know, all the same things we, we experience in the workplace, which don't don't happen when you're working or learning online. But no, like, online learning is very powerful. And so we're offering now um, a sort of remote first masters, and it's it's proving very, very popular. And I actually think that aside from the purely social aspects, the learners probably aren't missing out on very much. So that means that access to knowledge and teaching and learning, um, the barriers to that then drop away. You don't necessarily have to move to London, expensive cities like London or even expensive countries like the UK. You can do it remotely. But I think there's other ways in which technology is changing how we think about education, which is a bigger deal. I mean, other than we've known about distance learning for a very long time. I think COVID has accelerated its acceptance amongst learners as well as amongst providers. I think now if you look to generative AI, we have to think again about what does a really good piece of work look like. We have to think again about what are the skills that we're actually trying to teach when we're asking someone to write an essay. Um, And these are already just those two things are profound. So, for example, some questions which we were setting people in our second year Can now be done at the touch of a button um, with generative AI, as you can imagine. So now, how do we handle that? Do we do we ban it? Do we allow it? We're now actually encouraging it, but we're asking students to talk about the process of how they've used AI. And in my view, universities across the board now have to raise the bar of what they expect. So what used to get a first or a two one should now be just a pass, because you can get at the touch of a button. And our standards for what you should, you know, for a first class piece of work. Should be sort of through the roof now because that is such a powerful tool in generating work, and it's a really complicated thing which I don't think people have got to the bottom of yet. To ask what is the knowledge and skills you need given generative AI because it's definitely not zero, but what is it? So if you think about the Ox- Oxford model or Cambridge model of going and writing an essay every week, which I think it has its merits, you know that that now they really have to kind of really think what what's the what is the power of that? Is that still our best approach?
2: It's, uh, it's very interesting. I mean, in a way, uh, Google and the degree to which it changed slightly the way that we might approach something, and it required slightly different skills, but it didn't completely wholeheartedly change the nature of, of research. Um, it was a kind of accelerant. It's very interesting with AI because no one quite knows the degree to which it's going to improve and the degree to which it may end up being something that becomes so good um our skill set needs to evolve into entirely different things um, what, what does a sort of typical day look like um for one of your students like um you know how, how do they go about the sort of process of learning in your structure
1: well the, the single biggest innovation we've made is that our programs our, our degrees are organized around problems not around disciplines so we talked about the library. it You know, it, we're not organising it around corridors of knowledge now. We're organising it around complex problems like um, the emergence of AI, like uh, the need to move to a more sustainable economy, um, like inequality. Um, so these are big problems which which require an interdisciplinary approach. So there's, so a day for our student might be coming in. Um, there's a fair bit of uh, group work, so they might work with their team. They might be working with their team for a, for a term on a sustainability sustainability project with um, let's say the local council Um, so they've got a brief from that council to work um, on a kind of real issue but they're trying to bring to bear the neuroscience they're learning they're also learning um, network science they might also be learning some politics and they're trying to both learn those subjects being taught by a neuroscientist and a network scientist Um, but they're then taking that learning and trying to integrate it in the service of the problem that they're working on, which isn't trivial. They're also learning methods um, which are sort of quantitative and qualitative methods. So they're learning coding, statistical analysis. They're learning how to use image to kind of represent systems. They're learning how to do participant observation and design surveys. So they uh, and they, they won't be learning all of those at the same time. But after the end of three years, they'll have a set of quantitative and qualitative methods that they can reach to. And they'll have been in the habit of looking at complex problems from a different disciplinary perspective perspective Um, and wherever we can we're having them work with real organizations because and it's actually quite hard it's it's a challenge for us mapping academic learning to real world problems that is that is a challenge and it and it hits you in the face that actually a lot of the time it knowledge seems quite redundant because you're not using it but it's really important to have a set of redundant knowledge to accept that you just need to keep learning and and you never know who knew during covid that suddenly that science that you'd been remembering from your a-levels was going to be useful again
2: um what does this mean um, for companies like um i guess what's your kind of hope for lis is it that the approach and the kind of width and the degree to which connections are made between different disciplines is it that that becomes a, an element of every university course around the world or is it that lis itself grows um, is there a kind of move to push this within a kind of corporate context as well where people can start to train in that environment
1: well i, I want i want organizations businesses talking about interdisciplinary problem solving. And I think that they need that as part of that, they need to develop a courage to move into an intellectual courage to move into areas where they haven't necessarily got a degree or are considered an expert. There's This notion of interactional expertise, which is an area sort of a type of expertise, which sits between deep expertise where you're contributing to an area and just being a generalist and not knowing anything about it, and lots of us have interaction expertise. You know, um, you, you'd have one as a journalist if you're a science journalist, you might also be an economics journalist, right? And then you're a very interesting person because you can start to make connections between these fields, um, and you know enough about that area to sort of talk to the experts in that area, perhaps make jokes about it, um, read the books, but you're not, you're not, you're not considered by them to be an expert. But it's important that we have a language for this, and I think businesses need to. Be brave in talking about expertise in new ways. You know, it's not okay to be a CEO and just say, well, I don't do marketing. That's my chief marketing officer. You should really look at yourself and say, what's the what's the level of expertise I should have in marketing? What's the level of expertise I should have in the um, the energy kind of transition? What's the level of expertise I should have in material science or AI? Because it's not zero. And I don't think it's acceptable for us to kind of say, well, I, you know, I'm not very good at maths or I don't do science. That, that, but a lot of people do say that um, business, um, you know, leaders of really exciting organisations, particularly at the beginning of those organisations are often the engineers, the people who are close to the subject matter um, itself, the content itself. Um, and we can all name lots of these people. And, but they're not, often not the world leading expert in that area. They, are, they have a, a level of expertise, like an interaction expertise, in three or four areas. Um, and I think big established businesses need to think that that is something that they can develop.
2: For me, there's always been quite a strong power to asking um, a question where you don't know enough to know it's a bad question. Um, and you end <laughs> up asking quite naive like um, almost deliberately stupid questions, which can unlock enormous amounts of value. And you almost sort of have cultural permission to ask these things because you're not supposed to be steeped in that. So you can come to a company and say, why did you do it this way? Um, And rather than saying, duh, you know, regulation tells us we have to, um, you get this enormous sort of unlock from that. So I I kind of love that approach. Education is an amazing thing because we become quite sort of nostalgic about it. And often people ask us, um, you know, what our big regrets in life are. Uh, And for many people, it might be the sort of educational choices they made. So Mm -hmm. knowing everything you know now, you know, do you have anything that you would have done differently about your own education?
1: Oh, yes. I mean, look, part, part... part of why I've been working in education the last 10, 12 years is trying to correct for the fact that I felt boxed in in my own uh, education. I did engineering, mechanical engineering, um, because I thought it was going to be a very broad subject, but actually 70, 80% of it was basically maths because in the end, thermodynamics and fluid mechanics and solid mechanics, it's all maths and very hard maths, and it, well, most of it was too hard for me. But um, I, so I I probably wouldn't do engineering again. But of course, the fact that I had a mechanical engineering degree from Imperial probably got me the job 10 years later at McKinsey. So because it's about credentials, it wasn't because they're interested in how good I was at sort of certain kinds of maths. Now, I just don't think that's the right way around. I I would have loved to do um, an, a, a, a sort of interdisciplinary degree um, They didn't really exist back in 1996. Um, Some bachelors of arts and sciences have emerged in the last 10 years. There's four or five of them. There's a very good one at UCL. I'd have loved to do that. Um, And uh, so if I could rewind and do um, a sort of interdisciplinary degree or a liberal arts and sciences degree, I'd have jumped at it.
2: It's quite interesting. It always seems to be kind of based on this idea that we're probably going to live to about 60 or 70 or something. Uh, you know, By the time that we're 22, we need to have this sort of incredibly strong platform for our future destiny. Um, and actually, I kind of get the feeling that being as wide as possible for as long as possible and to have the ability to have five or six or seven different careers in life, mm. um, to have perhaps three or four different income streams that are not just limited to your sort of career um to have that sort of width and the the breadth of skill seems like an amazing um foundation for a flourishing life
1: well in, in a narrow degree is sort of creates a fragility not just in your actual knowledge but in your confidence that you can learn other things i mean how many people come out of school going well i'm not very good at math so i'm going to drop it whereas if our education system didn't really allow for that people would would continue to kind of push ahead with i'm not saying we should everyone should endure the subjects they hate for for, i remember being delighted to be able to give up french at gcse i just couldn't couldn't wait to stop it i was terrible at languages Um, but well, they you see there I am, I, I, and and now I don't have any courage or ability, or belief in my ability to go to go and learn another language, right? And I'm not sure that's a good thing. So I, I think, um, in a, in a in a in a world that's uh, changing, I'm, I'm not sort of I'm not a believer that it's changing quite as in quite such a wild way as people predict. A lot of the big changes that are happening in our world have been happening for 30 or 40 years, and these are the big important changes, in my view. But they still we still don't understand them well enough. But in a world that is changing. Um, Having a narrow set of knowledge, I think, creates a fragile um, kind of state for yourself and also your frame of mind
2: in terms of your ability to go and learn new things. I love it. Ed, thank you very much for being on the show. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks. I've enjoyed it. It's it for this episode i'm your host tom goodwin this series is produced by marta rodriguez martinez alice khanvali is also assisted in the production of this episode the theme music is by alexandra jazz sound editing is by jean christophe muscle and sound mixing is by matthew duchenne our editor-in-chief is ali isyan aidin If you aren't already, you can listen to this series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Castbox, or wherever you get your podcast. If you're already enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving us a positive review and, of course, sharing it. You may, of course, subscribe on YouTube. Thanks for listening.
0: Selling a little?